And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's trying that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. Indeed it is Friday and welcome to Climate Change Roundtable number 70 in a series. Thank you all for being here today. With me today are my usual suspects or usual experts as you might want to call them, uh, Dr. Sterling Burnett and Linnea Lucan. Welcome guys. Hello, good to be back. Yep, yeah, so it's Friday, according to Abel Windsor. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I'm wondering if we should continue to have Greta. I feel a little guilty having a, you know, a criminal uh, doing our closing since she's now been arrested and faces uh, months in jail for her activities. Well, we got Biden up there. What's your problem? Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> got a whole uh, new meaning to the term joe blow <laughs> oh wow yeah, yeah yeah oh my oh my well let's snuff that rumor out right now <laughs> <laughs> or, or in biden's case sniff that rumor out uh, the- yeah whatever okay <laughs> uh-huh. all right so this week has been a particularly crazy and in some ways frightening week um, we've had some really disturbing news, which we'll get to in our main segment in a little bit, about what the UN plans to do for power grabs using climate as an excuse. But first, I want to talk about the crazy news of the week, and there seemed to be a plethora of it. First thing we've got is we got Biden. Oh, no, we got who's climate? Who's who? WHO, the World Health Organization, says 1.4 million. European deaths can be blamed on climate change and environment, where they mean pollution. Well, climaterealism.com, as you know, tackles this kind of BS every day. And this is my rebuttal to it. And of course, it's wrong. You know, we found out why, because the data doesn't support it. If you scroll down a little bit, you'll see some of the graphs that I came up with. And uh, some tables. First of all, table one here, we've got the IPCC saying that, you know, climate really doesn't kill people. Climate, you know, doesn't happen on a, on a personal level. Climate doesn't reach out and destroy your house. Weather does. And so when the IPCC did their most recent report, IPCC's AR6 report, they didn't find any increased flooding, increased meteorological drought, hydrological drought, tropical cyclones, winter storms, thunderstorms, hail, lightning, or extreme winds. None of those can be attributed to climate change. In other words, storms are not being attributed to climate change. And if you scroll down a little further, climate-related deaths, according to Dr. Jorn Lundberg, says, hey, look, we're approaching zero on climate-related deaths, i.e. weather-related events uh, that 
could possibly be attributed to climate, but that's debatable. So it's approaching zero. So where's the 1.4 million? Not there. And then, gosh, you know, we've got uh, heat. They, they blame heat, you know, as the, the thing for more deaths. Well, it turns out cold is actually the bigger killer, literally by a factor of three to one or greater in most places. In Europe, it's three to one. More heat deaths, or less heat deaths than cold deaths, rather. But finally, they were talking about pollution being a contributor. Well, gosh, if you go look at the data from the European Union's um, air pollution site, where they look at their 27 different countries in the EU, look at that. Air pollution's going down on all levels. What the hell? And yet these folks will go on CNN as experts and say climate change is killing and 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 pollution is killing 1.4 million people and they haven't got one lick of data to support it well it's worse than that andy it's not i mean anthony sorry it's it's not just that they don't have a bit of data or don't try and present any evidence it's that there is existing data and it refutes everything they claim right which is why they don't want to put it up yeah, you don't want it, to talk it, about it that. Everything they, unless, unless the correlation or causal mechanism they're making is that um, the fewer deaths, that, that that pollution decline is actually causing more deaths. In which case, they'd be reversing what they've said for decades now: is that pollution is killing people. Well, pollution's declining, and if pollution's declining and you're having an increase in deaths, well, what is that? You know, that's a a weird correlation. Um, every 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 data point, temperature, deaths related temperatures declined in Europe, declined globally. Yep. Weather related deaths in Europe uh, declined globally, declined in Europe. And pollution, like I said, um, it, it's hard to link it to an increase in deaths when in fact it's declining. Right. But, you know, that spoils the agenda. So there you go. Speaking of agendas, the White House has cautiously opened the door to a study about blocking the sun's rays to slow global warming. Oh, gosh. What could possibly go wrong with that? Mm. You know, what I, the, I, the idea, I guess, is they're going to put particles in the atmosphere, particles in space or whatever. But what if the experiment gets out of control? Or what if some one madman gets control of the whole thing? I mean, where have we seen this before? It's, <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> Mr. Burns <laughs> and the Simpsons decided to block out the sun. And it seems like that's exactly what Joe Biden is trying to do. Yeah. What do you think? And yet, well, oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I think, you know, the first thing that jumps to a lot of people's minds is how exactly is this going to work when we're trying to expand solar dependence on our grid? <laughs> I, I I don't know about this one, Chief. This seems like yeah. it might not be the best idea. Not to say, you know, maybe we should start using, I don't know, like hairspray and CFCs again or something in order to cool the atmosphere down with particulate pollution and stuff again, if they're really worried about it, but I don't know. Uh, well, the problem like is, sorry, 
No, I, I was just going to say, it seems like they just really like spending money on really expensive projects. And that's about as far as it goes. Yeah, this is this is one of the worst. Ge there are geoengineering ideas that I like, but this is one of the worst geoengineering ideas I can think of. And and the problem is the particulate matter that they're talking about putting up there is the very particulate matter they spent decades removing from the atmosphere. Pollutants, sulfur dioxide primarily, Right. We do, oh, acid rain, terrible. So we got to get rid of, we got to limit coal burning, right? Coal, in coal fire power plants, capture all that SO2. Now it's, well, what are we going to do? Let's pump some SO2 into the atmosphere to block the sun. Well, okay, if it was bad for us in the first place, it's going to be bad for us still today under the new climate regime, right? Just like uh, replacing coal plants and gas plants and nuclear plants, which have small land footprints with solar and wind that have huge land footprints. We've been trying to protect wildlife and wilderness for decades. And now we're actively doing everything we can to destroy wildlife habitat and wildlife, uh, all in the name of saving the planet. So I, I guess you're killing the planet to save it. And in this case, you'll be, if, if because they said these particulate matters are destroying buildings and they're hurting people. I guess it's okay to start killing people with pollution to block the sun. This is so what Biden is open to. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, the, the absurdity, Storm D points out, I mean, it's obvious. They want us to use solar, yet, hey, you know what? Let's block out the sun a little bit so it's cooler. Mm, doesn't really work. All what right. Happens to all that, all the gains in plant growth because of extra CO2 when solar energy is less? That falls off as well. You need solar energy to convert the carbon dioxide into the necessary um, food and oxygen that plants make. So what, how could this go right? That's yeah. my question. How could it go right? Exactly. I, it, 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 Bill, Bill Pinckney just added a question. He says, what kind of geoengineering were you thinking might be okay? If I can address that real quickly. One kind of geoengineering that I've been in favor for a long, in favor of for a long time, not because of its impact on CO2, is um, salting the dead spots of the ocean with iron filings. Um, there are vast areas of the ocean where there's not a lot of sea life, and it's because uh, the way ocean ocean currents move, they don't move nutrients through there. We have billions of tons of iron filings. They're just iron. It's not dangerous. It's not unnatural that we could drop in those places. And when they've tested this, it creates the food chain there. Suddenly phytoplankton forms and then plankton and then sea life goes there. It does suck CO2 out of the atmosphere for a temporary time, but we, we don't, we're not, we're not running out of iron filings. We can just keep dumping them there every month or so a little bit and start a whole new food chain. It's good for the animals. It's good for the ocean life. It's good for the phytoplankton. And if you're concerned about CO2, it's good for that. Yeah, that experiment was tried about a decade ago on a small scale. And although it worked, it scared the scientists a little bit that tried it because they were worried about things getting out of control. Speaking well, of out of control. What, one of the things they were worried about is that if it was effective, we would care less about climate change. Right, right. Yeah, we have to we have to keep that scare going. Yeah. All right. Speaking of scary things, the UK has had the hottest June since records began in 1884 with climate change a factor. Well, 
gosh, 1884? I seem to recall that there are records longer than that. Yes, indeedy. It turns out if you look at the Central England Temperature Record, the CET, you find out that when you look at the data for June, as Paul Homewood did, that claim falls apart. Uh, we've got a graph here showing temperature for 1846 and the, the top warmest one. Now, look at the peak right there in the middle. That's 1846, the warmest June in the Central England Temperature Record. It goes all the way back to 1659, believe it or not. And not a whole lot of data back then, but there is some. So the June 1846 temperature record, as we see in the next graph, is significantly higher than the one we've had versus 2023. Well, where's the alarm? Well, there isn't any. And it's just like everything else we do here and also at Climate Realism on a daily basis. When you go and examine the data, these claims fall apart. They fall flat. Not much to add to that. The numbers pretty well speak for themselves, which is why they don't use them. Oh, right. Of course. We can't have any contrary uh, arguments up there. Okay. So not to be outdone, in July, yet another scare story. July 4th, the hottest day on record, in fact, according to the Washington Post, where democracy and science dies in darkness. And guess what? That's not supportable either. The whole claim was based on one website, Climate Reanalyzer, which is used to, it's a website put together by the University of Maine. And the Climate Reanalyzer site showed that it was the hottest ever. And someone on social media picked that up. And of course, like beagle dogs after a fox, the media went after this. Oh no, it's the hottest day ever. What are we gonna do? The Washington Post certainly bet. Well, it's in the very first sentence, too. It says, since at least 1979. Well, that's not even close <laughs> to the whole record. Yeah. Well, I, I saw reports that it was the hottest day ever since the last interglacial, 150,000 years ago. Now, I forget how good the satellite data was back then, but I have a feeling it was sort of sketchy. And so this climate reanalyzer, if it goes, if it actually said what the media, what some of the media are saying it said, which was the hottest back into the last interglacial 150,000 years ago. It's just making things up. <laughs> it's not reanalyzing anything. Um, <laughs> it's like, I, I can't imagine anyone would believe that any technology we have today can pick a particular date, a hundred and 50,000 years ago and say, yep, this is the hottest it's ever been. We can be confident, uh, as, Washington, as Washington Post says, in fact. Um, the gullibility or uh, just corrupt nature of these people astounds me. Yeah, it is. It is. But, you know, there was some media out there who was reporting this on a more, well, slightly more accurate way. Uh, there was an article in the PBS NewsHour uh, that talked about this. And, and they pointed out that the global average temperature spiked into uncharted territory after scientists talked about Monday's dramatic heat. Tuesday soared to 0.17 degrees Celsius or 0.31 degrees Fahrenheit. 
even hotter. Now, could anybody feel that compared to a regular summer day? No, it's not possible for humans to experience and really comprehend those minuscule temperature increases. It's not possible at all. But yet, the media ran with it. They went with terrifying headlines. And, um, for example, in the UK Mirror, they had a headline that said, you know, oh, my goodness, Earth experienced hottest day ever. Scientists warned climate is now terrifying. That 0.31 degrees Fahrenheit, that's terrifying. And look at all that red. Well, all that red is just normal for this time of year for the Northern Hemisphere. It's just weather. It's what we get. I want to know who was terrified. I go to the, it, apparently it, the writer back then. I mean, back when we still went to movie theaters, right before COVID, some of us still went to movie theaters. Uh, I would go to horror movies and people would walk out. Some of them would walk out terrified. I, I know what terrified looks like. Shock I want to know. I want them to identify. I, I want them to go to the man on the street and have him have that terrified face about the temperature. <laughs> That's what I want to see to know that people were terrified. Well, I just spotted my favorite word in that PBS article there. What's that? Or that mirror article. Totally unprecedented and terrifying. Yes. Totally unprecedented and terrifying. Unpre you know, ask, ask the Tyrannosaurus Rex whether it's unprecedented. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Jesus. So here's the fun part. The, uh, the climate reanalyzer peaked right there. There it is. Gosh. That's terrifying, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. Now, there are still some sane people in this climate debate. And um, a quote that we've got from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric... Uh, <laughs> I can't talk today. I apologize. I'm tongue-tied. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is a, a mouthful on its own, distanced itself from the designation compiled by the University of Maine's climate reanalyzer. Uh, they basically said... Uh, that they're using satellite data and computer simulations to measure the world's temperature. And it's noted that the reanalyzer uses model output data, which NOAA called not suitable as substitutes for actual temperature and climate records. So in other words, after the media, like Beagle Dogs, went barking after this and said, hey, this is a, a record. It's unprecedented. It's terrifying. And NOAA says, nah, forget about it. We can't verify it. Did you, did you, I'm curious, did you see the, the front page above the fold headlines retracting? I didn't see anything. Oh, I think we might've lost them there. Yes. Well, climate I think change. climate change has, has jumped out and bitten Sterling's connection. Well, I think I'm back on. Yep, yeah, you're back. you're back on. I guess I, the question I asked is, I was, I was, I've, I was looking at all the media stories. I missed all the above the fold headlines saying Noah, Noah says we were wrong. Let's retract that story. There were, there Did were no Emily Latella moments. Oh, oh, that's why I missed it. Okay. I just thought I wasn't a good observer. Nope. You know, it's almost <laughs> like they shoot from the hip on this stuff, knowing that they're going to get a really cool headline for them or a really hot headline for themselves. And then, 
uh, they know that people aren't either aren't going to read the whole article all the way to the bottom. And the bottom is usually where they put, well, and other scientists say that this probably is a bit of a dramatization of what actually happened. You know, it's uh, not quite this extreme of blah, blah, blah. They usually save that for the last paragraph. Uh, it's almost as if they know that people don't read the whole thing and that people don't usually read retractions when they come out. Of course not. Well, as as or more, you know, more importantly, so Noah says these were built on computer models. Even the reanalyzer says this is based on computer models. So climate change has got thrilling again. Well, shucks. Really? Are you yeah. serious? You know, Sterling, if you've got a lot of windows open on your computer, you might close some. Sometimes the processor gets a little busy. Okay. Well, I'm on my new computer. You wouldn't think that'd be an issue, but there you go. All righty. Uh, so what I was going to say is um, Noah says it's done with computer models. The reanalyzer says it's done with computer models and somehow blended satellite data, which is much less than 150,000 years. Uh, Linnea's smiling and I blanked again. No, I'm I'm just laughing at the blending real data into climate model data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but we know, we know. And how do we know? <laughs> the modelers themselves admit, the IPCC itself admits, climate models are running way too hot. I mean, that's a quote, way too hot. Um, why? Would anyone take these model projections seriously when the people who developed them says you can't trust <coughs> their projections? They're way too hot. Uh, well, I think it goes back to what climatologist Tom Wigley said about a decade or so ago. He says the temperature data is crap. Just rely on the models. <laughs> seriously he said that that well, came I'm, out in the, in the climate gate emails i i actually i saw someone trying to make that argument on uh twitter the other day not that some random commenter is speaking for the entirety of the climate alarmist side but i i did have a little bit of a facepalm moment when i saw someone say <laughs> actually the model outputs are more reliable than the measured data <laughs> what <laughs> uh my goodness. All right. Well, it's been a crazy week, and I wanted to say I've been feeling a little down lately. And so it's driven me to drink. Yes, I have found the solution for climate denialists everywhere. This power drink called Celsius. That's right. I'm drinking up temperature right here, folks, making myself overheated. Uh, all right. Enough of that. Now, on to the main topic. The main topic is really, truly frightening. I mean, despite all of this other BS you saw about temperatures this week, this is from uh, our, um, our colleague, Justin Haskins, who is in charge of the socialism or stopping socialism website that Harlan puts out. He wrote this fantastic article basically saying, the UN is planning to seize global emergency power with President Biden's support. And I looked at that and I thought, Really? And and he's, he's backed it up with good sources and whatever. And it is frightening what the UN is planning on. They're basically going to set up a situation, and apparently Biden is going to go along with it, 
whereby certain types of global emergencies will trigger an automatic, the UN comes in and tells you what to do. Um, here's, the, here's the money quote here. The UN general, Secretary General writes, I propose the General Assembly provide the Secretary General and the United Nations system with standing authority to convene and operationalize automatically as an emergency platform in the event of a future complex global shock of sufficient scale, severity, and reach. Well, what might those things be? Well, pandemic might be one of them. But one of the things that they are obviously on to is climate. Yeah, what about the warmest temperature of all time? Maybe yes. that could be an emergency. You start declaring things. Right, and we've got people around the world saying things like it's a climate emergency, it's a climate crisis. You know, our our climate munchkin, Greta, has everybody convinced that there's a climate crisis. Uh, well, maybe not everyone, obviously not the, these three people right here. But the point is, is that the media and the narrative is running with this idea that we're in a climate crisis. And I will point out that if you go back and look at Google and the, their n-gram utility, where if you look at word phrases and when they start being used, Climate crisis didn't exist a few years ago, completely off the radar. It's a marketing tool. That's all it is. There's no climate crisis. You know, we survived the hottest temperature ever this week, 0.31 degrees Fahrenheit above the hottest ever. The world didn't come to an end. No crisis. Yet the United Nations and the Biden administration seem to think that kind of stuff makes a crisis. I'm curious, too, because they specified, they said that one of the things that would trigger these emergency powers is a major climatic event. What What's a climate event? I, weather. Surely they mean weather, because as, there, as Anthony always says, you know, climate is measured over at least the 30-year period. You can't have a climate event. So clearly they're just talking about weather, but weather doesn't happen globally. Yeah. So what does that even mean? Well, we all saw the movie uh, The Day After Tomorrow. Maybe that's what they're talking about. Oh, yeah, because movies are just as real as climate models, right? Yeah. Well, you know, you know, the virtue is if the day after tomorrow occurred, uh, when I viewed it, I believe that the U.N. would be wiped off the map from the iceberg. But uh, so who's there to enforce the emergency? But um <sighs> I am comforted by the fact, not that Joe Biden agrees that we should cede this kind of authority to uh, Secretary General of the UN, but he has no authority to cede that authority to the Secretary General of the UN. He could even sign off an agreement like they did with Paris, but guess what? It's not a treaty. If it's not a treaty, it actually has no force of law. Um. <laughs> So, you know, I, the UN, what's it going to do? Ah, I now have the authority. So I'm telling you, you must do this. And if you don't, I'm going to send in the blue helmeted troops to the U.S. to make you. They, <laughs> because they've been so effective everywhere they've tr been tried. I mean, they've now been run out of uh, what was the country just last week they were run out of? Chad or something like that? Uh, uh, yeah, boy, they they really straightened things out there. Yeah. Uh. Sterling, they wouldn't make it past the Appalachians. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, you know, I asked, I, I request that they actually land their uh, 
landing craft there in Galveston and let's just get it over with. <laughs> yep. It's, uh, I don't know. It's, they've been playing this game out in the open since COVID, right? That's when they really started making these kind of broader proclamations where they say, you know, we're going to take the reins. If anything serious, like a major pandemic happens, um, the United Nations wants to be able to just say, you know, everyone in the UN cede your power to us and we're just going to coordinate from the top down what everyone's response has to be. Uh, it didn't end up working out during COVID, um, even though they did try a bit because different countries have different priorities. Different countries have different uh, philosophies when it comes to surviving a major cataclysm or a major event like COVID, however major you think it is. Um, it's mm, it's not going to work. <laughs> and, and I can't imagine going back to that climate event thing. I cannot imagine a weather event that could possibly happen that would require a global response. Yeah. Oh, it's not really a globe. You can't do anything about it. I mean, just like we can't do anything about an asteroid that's going to hit Earth. Maybe we might be able to deflect one if we've got the technology in place and we've got enough advance notice. But if one's on the way in, we're doomed. You yeah. can't do anything about it. And it's the same thing with an El Nino event. A big El Nino event happens. We can't do squat about it. Well, you know, when you look at the document, it's... Is, I don't know if it's scary or refreshing that it's actually up there. They're, you know, it's it's transparent that they're doing this. They're not hiding this. It's not behind the covers. They're having a whole meeting about it, I think, in 2024 or 2025. But what is really frightening is the authority, the scope of the authority that they are they would cede to a single person, the Secretary General of the UN, because it's not the UN itself. They don't vote on this. It's it's his authority. And he can declare it for up to a year. Once declared, he can uh, uh, re-up it if he thinks it's necessary month by month, forever, evidently. They say that this is inclusive, that he will be advised by a large group of people. Any people, it turns out, he selects that he thinks are relevant to uh, as advisors, but they're advisors. He doesn't have to take even his own advisors um, uh, suggestions into account. So it's like, they're basically making him the world dictator. Yeah. And so as we saw in that graphic there that El Nino, well, that's not the exact headline. Um, there we go. No? Interesting. Um, well, all right. So here we go. Here's here's one from the UN. The UN says the El Nino is likely to threaten lives and break temperature records. And so for them, that's a crisis. And, you know, we had the UN Secretary General, what's his name? I miss Boutros Boutros Ghali. He was easy to remember. Um, but uh, Letterman made a lot of hay with him. But uh, basically, we had the guy say, uh, you know, it's out of control. Well, if it's out of control, what makes you think you can do something about it, buddy? No, they can't do. What they think they can do is manage the response. He, uh, the all-powerful Oz behind the curtain, 
will know how to handle it in every location around the earth, what's best for those people. Uh, he might have a different response for the U.S. than he has for Tonga, than he has for Brazil or China. And, and I'm sure, by the way, China's really going to go headlong into this and grant the U.N. Uh, <laughs> global emergency authority over their rule. And Putin, I, I've heard him many times saying, oh, if only someone would take the burden of ruling off my shoulders, let's give it to the U.N. Um, uh, the, the secretary general will tailor different responses to the same emergency, depending upon where they are. I suspect that's what he has meant. Right. So I want to point out, this is what El Nino looks like right now. We have a graphic from NOAA that shows the heat in the ocean on the developing El Nino. Now, I'm sure a lot of people have seen this in the past, uh, and they've seen what El Nino looks like. But I want to show it again, um, this graphic um, that is, no, not that one. Um, this one here is a, a graphic of the El Nino temperatures in the Pacific. Can we bring that up, Andy? I'll just put, send it to you in the private chat. There it is. Thank you very much. So here's the SST anomaly chart produced by the Office of Satellite and Product Operations of NOAA. You see that red streak there coming off the coast of South America? Um, well, there you go. That's the crisis that they say is going to happen. If you look, there's other places in the world that are much cooler than normal, like off the coast of California or far South America or off the west coast of Australia or over near Taiwan. Gosh, you know, the whole world is not burning up, but they would have you believe that it is, and therefore it's a crisis. And this is natural stuff. This is natural phenomena. El Nino is not driven by carbon dioxide. El Nino is not driven by human behavior. El Nino has happened for millennia before humans were even around running SUVs up and down the street. The point is, is that this is a natural event. And we've had several El Ninos, and we've survived every one of them. What makes the UN and all these other climate crazies think we're not going to survive this one where we have to invoke emergency powers to save the planet? What a load of horse pucky. Oh, that's exactly right. And also, you know, they'll try to claim that climate change is, is amplifying the effects of the La Nina or El Nino. I, we saw a couple of those that we covered in climate realism last summer uh, for La Nina towards the end of uh, the second one. I think we had a triple dip La Nina cycle uh, the last couple of years. And they were saying that it's worse than ever because of climate change. But then when you look at the rainfall data in California and Australia, which are two regions that are strongly affected by that particular system, um, there's no indicator whatsoever that shows that it's getting worse over time or more intense or anything. Yeah, so what they're saying is climate change, made, climate change made La Nina cooler things worse. And climate change made El Nino warmer things worse, right? Right. That's I have what, a, I have that's a why that it's I climate can. change and not global warming anymore. Because exactly. climate change is anything. It's the universal boogeyman. Yeah, yeah. But here's the solution, guys. Here's a meme. But I... 
The TV told me that if I pay money to the government, the weather will be gooder. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes the Simpsons come up with really good things. Although that's not particularly in from the Simpsons, the character is, but not the headline. But yeah, it's true. I mean, if we if we pay money to the government and eat bugs, will that make the weather gooder? Show me the correlation connection with that one. No, All but right. it'll make them richer and more powerful. Right. And that's, and what that's the, really what it's and, about. The whole thing's a power really grab. It's about, right. Yeah. And it's frightening. And I, I folks, I gotta tell you, if this comes to pass, I urge you to resist with every fiber of your being. This kind of thing is just I can't even come up with the words for it beyond wrong. It's just it's just beyond wrong. All right, let's go for some QA. Walter Hoyle or Hogel says, does anyone actually believe the hottest day on record crap? What instrumentation are they using for that statistic? Well, that's the thing. It's out of climate model output. No instrumentation required. You don't have to have a thermometer to do that. No, no, you can take all the, the data from thermometers around the world and combine it with a model and make a prediction for an anomaly and come up with this hottest number. And I would point out that an anomaly is not real data. An anomaly is an offset of data. It's a difference of data compared to what you think it should be. And anyone can set what the baseline of the anomaly is. It's an arbitrary choice. So if you set the baseline of the anomaly, let's say average temperature of the Earth is 58 degrees Fahrenheit, okay? We actually got that on WhatsApp with that. If you go to my website, WhatsApp with that, you'll see a calculation on the side, on the sidebar, updates in real time constantly from temperature.global, and it shows real data in the calculation, not anomalies, not models, real honest-to-goodness data. It's there every day of the week, and it isn't frightening. It's not running off and, and running you know, amok. But if you say, okay, the baseline for my anomaly calculation is 57 degrees, and now you know it goes up to 58, you can say, well, gosh, look at that dramatic increase when it's magnified that whole one degree. That looks scary. And that's the biggest problem that we've got, where a lot of these anomaly graphs are presented in a scary way. Yeah, you, 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 blow, them, you blow them up, you, you paint them up a really dramatic color, and you picked, as you say, I think one of the most critical things is you pick the time period against which the anomaly is measured. If it's 1963 to 1993, when the average temperature was uh, had, had been cooling for uh, the previous 20 years and cooled up until the 80s, you only get some warming starting in the 80, late 80s. Um, well, it's easy to show it's an anomaly, right? And it's a, a record-setting anomaly. You just pick your time period. Right. Time slice data. It's always cherry-picking. They're always cherry-picking. I do have a question on that that Anthony might be able to answer. What, how do they pick these ranges that they choose for their center line, for their average, for the norm? Uh, because, you know, it seems like, do they try to find a time period in which it doesn't seem like there was very much change? Or I, I've never quite understood why. And usually it's something like 1984 through 2000 or something like that. Um, it's it seems a little arbitrary. It is. For example, NASA GISS, when they first started this whole mess back in June of 1988, they were using a baseline 
time baseline of 1950 to 1980. And they have refused, and that happened to be one of the coolest periods. You know, we had all of that. Remember the, the global freezing scare that we had mm-hmm. in the 70s where temperatures were down? The Coming United States age. experienced tremendous yeah. uh, blizzards and cold and all kinds of things. And so they choose 1950 to 1980. And they haven't changed it. And here's the NASA guess. Now, here's this, this is the feature that's on my website. What's up with that every day? And it shows their temperature anomaly versus absolute temperature. Absolute temperature is the actual measurements. The anomaly is the difference from the arbitrary baseline. So the arbitrary baseline at the top, gosh, look, it's scary. We're, we're on a highway to hell going straight up there. But when you look at it in the scale of human experience, like we have with a regular thermometer or what we experience living in the United States or the world on a day-to-day basis, where we see temperatures below freezing, we see temperatures above 100 degrees, it's almost flat when you look at the absolute actual temperatures plotted over the same period. And that's what gets people excited, that that graph there. They think that's real temperature. It's not. It's a temperature anomaly compared to an arbitrary baseline. And they don't read the, you know, the sidebars, the uh, the vertical axes and the horizontal axes to tell you what is being compared, what the temperature, you know, it says, oh, it's at one degree, right? It, 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 when you realize that that big spike is one degree, it seems less alarming. Um, and they do the same thing. It's not just temperature that they do this on, right? They do the same thing for like sea ice in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to do average? Comp- oh, sea ice is way down. Well, what's the comparison point? Well, it, it turns out we picked the comparison point, the highest period of sea ice in the 20th century, right? Not the, right. Not the low period from the early part of the 20th century or the late uh, 19th century when people thought we would be able to, uh, you know, sail uh, across the entire Arctic. And of course we know what happened there. Ships got trapped and people died, but uh, we picked the highest point of sea ice, the highest period of sea ice. And then we say, well, that's the norm. They pretend like the highest <laughs> yeah. period is the norm. And that's the comparison. point. Yeah. Well, and that, and then, you know, you'll see in the newspaper, it'll say uh, a chunk of ice. That's a million tons has broken off of Antarctica. This is a catastrophe. And then you're like, well, what's the volume of the entire ocean? <laughs> I'd be curious to know that compared to 1 million tons of ice because uh, yeah. it doesn't really seem like it would make that much of a difference. And how Then much- they come up with these crazy metrics like, you know, six Manhattan Islands worth of ice, you know, and all this stuff, you know. Mm. <laughs> all right. Got some more questions. Let's see. All right. The two to three degree change, even if real, will kill you. Please explain. There's nothing to explain. You go through that every day from morning to night. Are you dead? You know, <laughs> I admit that there are some people who would retire further south when they retire. And I'm not going to retire to Minnesota or uh, or North Dakota, uh, largely because they're flat and cold. But I would retire to a mountainous and cold place, uh, th- you know, three degrees. But most people don't think <laughs> that, that, oh, Miami's three degrees warmer than uh, Fargo, North Dakota. Th- that's going to stop me from retiring from Fargo to, to Miami. Yep. Yep. So there's a question here from Squidward. 
Anthony, we badly need your new GOATS, which stands for Global Open Atmospheric Temperature System Surface Station Project. Like, seriously badly. It's been 50 years, and we still don't have reliable surface temperature data. Well, as they say, good things come to those who wait. And it, I had to do some testing before I get this thing out the door. And I'm happy to say that this past weekend, my one of my test stations in California survived a big heat wave that went through where it saw air temperatures in excess of 108 degrees. Now I had to actually let the system go through this process and experience these temperatures to see how it performed. You know, I know the measurement parts are accurate, but can the electronics withstand this kind of heat? So I had to test it. I mean, you just can't put anything out the door without testing it unless you're running a submersible over to the Titanic or something. Anyway, um, <laughs> so it survived. And it's with flying colors, but we did learn a few things where we have to make a couple of adjustments. Uh, we need to put a sunshield on the back of the uh, uh, electronics box to help keep the temperature of the electronics box down. So we're working on that. And now that we've got that figured out, we're going to get ready to release that. And for those of you that have been wondering about it, it's coming and it's coming soon. Uh, but please let me finish the testing. Next question. You know, I don't know. When have models been right? You know, there's a different thing about models. There's climate models, which are chaotic in nature. And then there's physical models, things like modeling um, uh, how an automobile tire and friction works on a road or something like that. Those kinds of models, physical mechanical models, looking at, you know, linear processes and so forth, those work really well. And they are very useful to scientists and engineers to be able to predict the behavior of materials or processes or components or whatever, because they're simple and they're linear and they're known quantities. But the problem with climate models is the atmosphere, as Dr. Judith Curry pointed out last week, the atmosphere is chaotic. It's a wicked problem because it is so chaotic. And that's why these climate models fail regularly. Well, Guys, some of our weather... Some of the weather models we have are pretty good, though, right? I mean, correct true. me if I'm wrong, but the European models for hurricane projections are pretty solid from what I've they seen. Um, there's no way to be perfect. But, you know, as um, uh, Stan showed us a couple of weeks ago when we had him on, they've, they've been pretty darn spot on with uh, projections on some of these hurricane paths the last couple of years. So that's a huge benefit to, you know, coastal communities that are going to be suffering from strikes and stuff. So yeah, that's a big deal. Well, you know, uh, even weather models. So I've, I, I, you know, I've lived longer than many of our audience and certainly than Linnea. Uh, I don't know about Anthony. We're probably pretty close. Um, Weather forecasting has improved since I was young, but they rely on models. Models can't get the small details right uh, in real time. And so just an example. So this week, every day of the week, we had uh, a significant chance of rain here in Dallas. We were supposed to get rain. Now, uh, was it hundred percent? No, but that just means that not all of hundred percent was going to be covered. It was, it was 38%. It was 43%. So some portion of the Metroplex should have gotten some rain. 
no portion of the Metroplex did on any day. So they were wrong every single day. Um, and that's day to day and in a week, not talking about 50 years from now or a hundred years from now. Um, that doesn't mean we, we eschew weather forecasting. You, it doesn't mean you don't watch the weather channel or your local news, but what it does mean is you still take it with a grain of salt. Do you take an umbrella if they say 42% chance of rain? Maybe, but you probably don't have to wear galoshes. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, cancel the party. We, we didn't cancel 4th of July because it was supposed to rain on 4th of July. So, um, and that's just local stuff, right? The global, the regional, it's even more because it has all the different locals supposedly you know, to get it right, it has to have all that data fed into it. It has to have all the assumptions right. And instead, it not only doesn't get all the assumptions right, because we don't know everything. It, it can't build in all the physics. It, it also builds in all sorts of things that are just pure speculation. The feedback loops. The speculation about what happens if the, perm the permafrost melts and how much methane is emitted. What happens if the albedo changes? That's just made up. Yeah, so, there's so many factors. It's so complex. It is just, it's, it, it's massively complex. And it's not linear like short-term weather forecasts are. I mean, weather forecasts are fairly easy to predict, even without a computer. I mean, you look at a cold front that comes in from Canada, and you can watch its progression, and then you can see its speed. And you can predict that X hours ahead of time, it's likely to be here. And when it's here, it's likely to produce this kind of weather. That kind of stuff is relatively easy. The chaos is not huge in that sort of a prediction. But when you move it out, you know, right now, we can't really get an accurate weather forecast of any consequence beyond about seven to 10 days. It, it varies. Beyond that, it's essentially impossible because there is chaos. Things change. And so the, the forecast starts falling apart numerically. It doesn't work. All right, next question. Let's see what we got here. Let's say all CO2 emissions were stopped overnight, apart from plants not growing so well, which is an obvious effect. How long would it take to actually start to make a difference, if any difference? Well, um, that's the big question. Carla, you take that for a minute while I bring up a graph real quick that Andy can put up, okay? Okay. <laughs> the answer is we have no way of knowing if it would make a difference ever. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess part of that question is, you know, when we say all CO2 emissions are stopped overnight, is this just human CO2 emissions or off-gassing from the oceans? Because if you stopped all of it, if there was a magic wand that you could wave to say no CO2 is emitted anywhere anymore, then maybe, <laughs> maybe after, I don't even know what the lag time would be. I don't think anyone knows what the lag time would be. There seems to be a lag in the proxy data, but it's on the scale of, I think, hundreds of years. So yeah, right. I don't really know. So I want to point well, out. It's, and, here, and, this... and temperature is the leading factor, not the CO2. Okay. So he asked, how long would it take to actually start to make a difference? Well, we actually see in the global atmospheric CO2 measurement, CO2 declining every year. So if you stopped it today, we would start seeing a decline literally within a few months. If you see those little fluctuations going on in the graph there, when you see it going down, 
that's plant respiration sucking up the CO2. It's also the cooler temperature, the warmer versus the warmer temperatures, northern hemisphere versus southern hemisphere, all those factors. But the bottom line is, if you stopped emitting CO2 today, the Earth would start sucking it in. The oceans would absorb some of it. Plants would absorb some of it. And so we would start seeing it go down in a few months. And yet we didn't see much of a difference during the lockdowns of COVID. That's true. That's true. Uh, Everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of people thought, you know what? Um, When the COVID thing hit, um, we expected to see CO2 reduced because, you know, the whole... um, No one was driving, businesses were closed, all sorts of things. Yep. Right. So um, I've got a graph here that I'm uh, bringing up in Slack on our climate change roundtable discussion that hopefully Andy can bring up that talks about the logarithmic and the saturation effect of CO2. Now, this is not normally portrayed in the media. Most media can't really even get their mind around this because they don't understand logarithms. But here's the thing. If as the, here's a here's an analogy that I use when I give talks to help people understand this. The more CO2 in the atmosphere you get, the less effective it is at warming. And it's just like having a bowl of soup. You sit down to dinner, you have a bowl of soup. You taste the soup. Mm, needs a little salt. So you add some salt to it. You taste it again. Mm, maybe needs a little more salt. So you add some more salt to it. And you taste it again, and all of a sudden, it's too salty. Your taste buds go like, they're screaming, it's too salty. No matter how much more salt you add to that soup, it's not going to change the taste according to your taste buds, because your taste buds' response to the salt is saturated. And it's the same thing with CO2 in the atmosphere. As we add more of it, we get closer and closer to saturation, and we can't get any more warming effect from it. And this graph shows it. Well, I I think... And we've we've talked about this a couple times before, but it's always worth bringing up again. You know, people who work with wavelengths of light, who work in planetary um, sciences, they they're aware of this. <laughs> you know, people who work in remote sensing are aware of this because it's how you know satellites and stuff need to take account for some of this uh, when it comes to projecting any kind of a light down to earth or back up into space, you have to know what wavelengths are going to be blocked by the composition of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not a mist like this isn't some, you know, esoteric, unknown, occult science <laughs> that is a mystery to the people at the IPCC, or in other uh, climate groups, like those attribution science groups, they know. But they're, they seem to be operating under the assumption that it doesn't matter, that we're, we're heading towards catastrophe anyway. And it's puzzling. It's, it's quite curious. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I can guess why. It's because the goal is power, not <laughs> any kind of actual, you know, understanding of climate or understanding of how the earth or is going to respond. solutions for that matter. Yeah, our solutions. Um, but Man, if, if people can educate other people on this particular element, I, I do think that it would help uh, to broaden some skepticism for the whole theory. I, and I'm not going to say that CO2 doesn't have an impact on warming at all, because I think it does. 
but I think that the amount is way, probably way overrepresented in the models. Um, and I think that there, there needs to be a little bit more um, appropriate and cautious skepticism when people are trying to make claims like CO2 doesn't have an effect on temperature or CO2 has all the impact on temperature. It's the main control knob. I think that there's a healthy, realistic variant there. Mm -hmm. You know, and regard regardless of its effect on temperature, it does have an effect on life. And over time, CO2 has been sucked out of the atmosphere through plants and dying plants stored in the, on the ground, through roots. Uh, it's been turned into carbonaceous rocks through compression. Uh, and so in the late period of the last ice age, we reached a hundred, I think it's 180 parts per million of CO2. If the natural, if we had never screwed anything up, um, trend had continued, it's estimated that by in about two and a half million years, nature would have sucked enough carbon out of the atmosphere that it would have gone below 150 parts per million. And at 150 parts per million, plants die because they no longer do undertake photosynthesis. They need CO2 for photosynthesis. And when plants die, everything else dies too. That's right. So, it does. So we it were does. dangerously low. We are. And we came out of the ice age. And we lost Sterling again. We came out of the ice age and that was it. All right. <laughs> so look at this. We've got something else here to show you while we get Sterling back. In 2006, Prophet Al Gore said that we should all be dead by 2016. Are y'all feeling well? I don't think he said that. I don't know about that. I, does anyone recall Al Gore saying we'd all be dead? I'm sure it was implied a couple times. Of course. Of course. All right. One final question, and then we got to run. Does the thermosphere have any influence on the ozone and Earth's climate? What influences the thermosphere itself? Well, we don't have enough time left to talk about that one. <laughs> I'm sorry. That one's just too deep for us to get into right now. Um, but let me say that the whole atmosphere is all interconnected and so forth. What's the latest on the ozone layer? And did it actually make a difference what we did? Well, it's debatable. On one hand, yes, the ozone layer and the hole in the ozone in Antarctica is getting a little better. On the other hand, now, some scientists are saying, well, you know, maybe the deodorants and so forth weren't actually doing that. Maybe it's been there forever and we just now noticed it. Hard yeah. to say. It's All hard right. to imagine that we could possibly use enough aerosol product to make a hole in the ozone layer. <laughs> well, I've, I've never understood, and, you know, this may prove my scientific illiteracy. So the ozone layer is way up high. The holes were appearing in Antarctica, uh, and yet we're releasing all the CFCs down at ground level. And ozone in the, in the lower atmosphere is, you know, breaking records. The government wants to restrict ozone. Why isn't the CFCs breaking up the ozone right above Dallas, bringing us below record, you know, bringing us into alliance with the EPA's uh, standards? Yeah. Why did it well, skip the ozone here, but that affect the ozone way up there? 
I don't know. The whole answer to this is way off in the ozone. Anyway, <laughs> and that's all the time we have for number 70 of Climate Change Roundtable. I want to thank you for joining us today. I want to thank our panelists, Sterling Burnett and Linnea, for being with us today, as usual. I also want to remind you to go visit us on climaterealism.com, climateataglance.com, and energyataglance.com for facts and figures that help dispel some of this nonsense that we've seen this week. For Sterling and Linnea, I'm Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for the Heartland Institute for Environment and Climate, wishing you a great day and a great weekend. Bye-bye.